cow-calf producers, they have a lot of challenges and a lot of decisions to make on a day-to-day basis. And so I think when it comes to using genetic tools, it's, I think sometimes that information is overwhelming. And so it's, it can be almost too much information and it, it's like, you know, how do you sort through all of that to make that right decision? And, um, The other thing, too, is it's not as tangible as, you know, if you're making a change in your nutrition program or something like that, you see those results, those calves get heavier, they gain weight, things like that. Genetics isn't quite as tangible as that. It's more of a long-term process. And so you have to be committed to making that, you know, that commitment long-term. And it's a decision you make early on that you're going to see the benefits of that in a year to two years down the road. So it's really about having that, that it's the long game approach to it versus, you know, it's not going to be a quick turnaround. So um, the big challenge or the challenge that I see for myself working in extension is how do we make these genetic tools accessible and they're accessible, but how do we make them so that producers can really understand how to use them and apply them to make improvements in their herd. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. High D from DSM Firmanish can help your cattle get the vitamin D they need this winter. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Hi, welcome to the Beef Podcast. I'm Brad White, one of the hosts, and happy to be joined today by Dr. Randy Colbertson, who is an assistant professor at Iowa State. Welcome, Randy. Hi, glad to be here. So we're happy to have you with us because we're interested to hear some of your information as, as you've done some work on applied research, looking at the genetics aspect. We're going to talk through some of the things that you've been doing in your faculty job and share some information that'll be useful to beef producers. As always, we're happy for you to to join us as well, listening. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself, Randy. Um, Yeah. So like you said, I'm here at Iowa State. I'm the cow-calf extension specialist and faculty here on campus. Uh, So I have an extension appointment primarily, but I also have research and teaching as part of that appointment. And um, originally, I grew up, uh, spent my childhood on my, uh, ca- my family's cow-calf operation in northern New Mexico. Uh, the family no longer has that uh, ranch, but uh, I went to school at New Mexico State University, where I got my bachelor's, go Aggies, and then um, took a break. I had about 10 years before I went back to school to get my graduate degree, so I was a non-traditional student. And I got my degrees at Colorado State in animal breeding and genetics. From there, I went to um, Bozeman, Montana, where I worked for the American Simmental Association and was the lead geneticist there for about three years for um, International Genetic Solutions. And from there, I uh, moved here to Iowa 
where I took the position here as cow-calf extension specialist. So um, so this is my first time not living next to mountains. So I, uh, you know, it's been a little bit of an experience to get my bearings in Iowa, so to yeah. speak. We have a time and labor-saving product for you. Beef and Dairy AgriSlat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With Beef and Dairy AgriSlat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year, and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting, and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. There's no mountains around. Uh, There's so, none. <laughs> so you've lived New Mexico, Colorado, Montana, Iowa. My first question, non, non-beef related. Uh, which is your favorite wintertime destination of those four? Oh, well, um, it's going to be southern New Mexico, which is where I'm <laughs> heading for Christmas because it'll be probably about 60 degrees. The downside is when it snows in Las Cruces, everybody panics and, you know, and it'll be like an inch of snow and, you know, this whole town shuts down. But yeah, yeah that's where I like to spend my uh, a few days anyway, soaking up some sun. So, yeah, absolutely. It's a nice break in the in the winter. But you're with your background you've done. So from cow calf operation, what got you into genetics, animal breeding? Yeah. So uh, when I was at New Mexico State, I like numbers. I like working with equations. I'm not great at memorization. So, you know, like anatomy and those classes were a little bit more of a struggle for me. But uh, I took an animal breeding class at New Mexico State and just loved EPDs. I loved working with numbers. And I just was fascinated with genetics and more so, of you know, the tools for selection how do you select cattle that are going to perform better and things like that? So that's really what got me hooked. And so when I went back to grad school, I really wanted to go into that field. So, yeah. Yeah. And so, and so as you went through grad school and then you worked with the Semental Association, now you're, you're working with producers. I'll, I'll ask, what, what do you see as a couple of the biggest hurdles that producers face when they're trying to make genetic decisions. So you mentioned there's there's a lot of information out there, but what are some of the challenges that cow-calf producers face when making some of those decisions? Yeah, well, you know, I think just even taking a step back, cow-calf producers, they have a lot of challenges and a lot of decisions to make on a day-to-day basis. And so I think when it comes to using genetic tools, it's, I think sometimes that information is overwhelming. And so it's, it can be almost too much information and it, it's like, you know, how do you sort through all of that to make that right decision? And um, the other thing too, is it's not as tangible as, you know, if you're making a change in your nutrition protocol program or something like that, you see those results, those calves get heavier, they gain weight, things like that. Genetics isn't quite as tangible as that. It's more of a long-term process. And so you have to be committed to making that, you know, that commitment long-term. And it's a decision you make early on that you're going to see the benefits of that in a year to two years down the road. So it's really about having that, it's the long game 
approach to it versus, you know, it's not going to be a quick turnaround. So um, the big challenge or the challenge that I see for myself working in extension is how do we make these genetic tools accessible and they're accessible, but how do we make them so that producers can really understand how to use them and apply them to make improvements in their herd? So I think those are two really good areas to think about. One too much information, right? Sometimes we feel overwhelmed by the amount of information we can get. And two, how do I gear myself up for the long-term game? So let's talk about each of those individually. On the too much information side, do you have any advice for producers? And, and I'll put it a specific scenario. I'm going to go buy a bull, right? And, and I can look at the bull catalog. I can look up his EPDs. He might have ultrasound, he might have had genomic testing, he might have been on a bull test, so I've got his actual data. How do I filter through that? If I'm a producer and I'm trying to make the best decision, can you give me some advice in that direction? Yeah, so, you know, specifically, you know, if you're buying a bull, the first thing I like to say is, you know, what's your breeding objective? What's your business plan for your herd and where you're going and where you want your genetics to go? So have that in mind and have a goal, make sure it's attainable. You know, um, something that kind of makes me a little bit crazy is when somebody says, well, I want a bull who's in the top 1% of everything. That's not realistic. Okay. And even if it was realistic, the people who could afford that bull, you know, that's going to be a really expensive bull. So let's talk about realistically, what do you need for your operation? You know, if you are selling your calves at weaning, you know, maybe your objective is to increase weaning weight. Um, If you are retaining ownership, that might change that objective a little bit because you have a different endpoint of where you're going to be marketing those calves. So first thing is have a plan um, I, you know, breeding objective, I call it your genetic business plan. If you're running a business, you have a plan and where it's going to go. The same thing can be applied when it comes to breeding. So you take that objective, you say, these are the traits that are really important to me. Now it's time to go shopping for a bull. Next question is, do you need, are you a purebred operation or could you maybe capitalize on heterosis? So maybe looking at a, a breed rotation to, you know, do some crossbreeding in your herd. And then once you kind of make those decisions, you know what traits are important to you, what breed of bull you want. The next thing is now we're going to be looking at our EPDs and our genetic tools for this bull. Because what you're purchasing in a bull is, you know, his performance, he's got to go out and get cows pregnant but really we're really interested in the genetics that he has to pass on to that next generation. So you want to look at those genetic tools. So based off of, you know, you know where you're going with this, what traits you're interested in, the breed, let's look at those EPDs. And that's where things can get pretty messy pretty fast because if you go to any breed association website, you look up a bull, you're going to be looking at how many EPDs. So that's where we can really capitalize on indexes. You know, so these indexes are a way to use multiple traits that are balanced based off of their e- economic importance to the overall objective of that index. 
And that's where you got to do a little homework on your part as a producer is you got to sit down and say, okay, which index really fits my breeding objective? And the index may not fit perfectly, but you can find one that fits pretty closely. And let's say, you know, you want to set a threshold of saying, I want calving ease. I'm only going to look at bulls with a calving ease in the top 20% of this breed. You can set that threshold and then search at bulls within that index. You can sort those bulls within that index for that. And so that's a great way to kind of be able to, you know, like I said, it's a lot of information that comes down, but you can kind of sift through and really narrow it down, boil down to the information that you know is really going to help you obtain that breeding objective. And the other thing is keep track of what your herd's doing. If you don't measure what your herd performance is, you don't know where you're going to be going. So you need to know where you've come from and where you're going. So keep track of herd performance. It's another big thing. If you want to make improvement, you got to measure it. So, um, you know, that's a, a big component as well. That way you know what kind of bull, where your weaknesses might be that you might need to make some improvement on. Then you can go choose a bull to help make, you know, kind of help with those weaknesses. Or you might have something that's working really well. You want to keep that going forward. So, like I said, uh, recording information performance of your herd is important as well. So start with the start with the breeding objective, which I like, and then you went through the process of how you end up with being able to select a bull. A couple things that I picked up on that I want to ask specific questions about. So one. You mentioned uh, we can't get a bull that's in the top 1% of everything. And I was talking with a colleague last week. And in fact, he said he's looking at, he doesn't like to get bulls in the top 1% of things like birth weight because he felt like the trade-off was too big because birth weight is typically negatively correlated with some of our, our, our other growth traits. What are, what are your thoughts on that position? Do you agree, disagree, or have other caveats? You know, uh, it's, I don't want to say that I, I disagree or agree, because that also is going to fit with that producer's production, right? So what fits for one person isn't necessarily also going to be the same criteria for for their neighbor, right? But as far as, you know, when we, the big thing that you touched on was correlation, right? Traits are genetically correlated to each other, especially our growth traits. If you are looking to increase your weaning weights and your yearling weights, you're also going to be having an increase to birth weight, maybe an increase, not maybe, but you will start to push up your mature cow size as well. That's because those genes are all, they're genetically correlated. Genes that affect weaning weight and yearling weight are also going to affect birth weight and mature cow weight. And so, um, but the other thing too is I like to put the focus less on birth weight and more focus on calving ease. So calving ease and birth weight are genetically correlated. Um, typically, birth weight is, in, is used in the genetic evaluation of calving ease. And calving ease is the measure of, you know, decreasing incidences of dystocia you know, how easily that calf was born. So it's including that birth weight, a big calf. You might start to push up some incidents of dystocia, especially on your heifers. But, you know, there's also those heifers that can push out, you know, if they're able to give birth to that calf and calve out that calf fairly 
easily, we want to give credit to that genetically. So if you're selecting on calving ease, that's probably your more economically relevant trait to select on than birth weight. And so that's the trait you really want to focus on. So I try to just, you know, hammer that in a little bit. Let's, let's, let's focus on calving ease and less on birth weight. So, you know, you're setting that threshold, you're probably better off. And, and when you say calving ease, often there are two calving ease EPDs, one for calving ease direct and calving ease maternal. Could you distinguish those for me a little bit? Yeah. So calving ease direct is the genetics that's passed on that that's going to go directly to that calf for calving. That's the one we were, that's the one we were basically just talking about, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. Calving ease maternal is, so if you are selecting a bull and you're planning to keep replacement heifers from that bull, you want to look at that calving ease maternal because that's the genes that that bull is going to pass on to his daughters for their ability during calving. How well is she going to give birth to that calf? So that's kind of that distinction. Calving ease direct is the genetics that's going directly to that calf to be born and the genes that that calf is going to possess versus calving ease maternal is those genes that aren't we're not going to really see that expressed until those daughters are having calves. So we get to the heifers. Yep. Exactly. Excellent. That makes sense. The, the other thing. And, and so what you're saying is uh, don't single trait select, but look at it in context of what you want for your operation, which is why you mentioned the indexes earlier. So I was going to have you expand on that when you said those in, so those can can I single trait select based on an index? Um, I'll put you, I'll put you on the spot here. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, you can do whatever you want. Let's be honest. <laughs> okay. You know, should I? Should Let me change my question. Should I? Yes. Right. So the indexes, you know, they, by definition, an index is incorporating multiple traits. Now, you could design an index to put a lot of focus on a single trait more, you know, more, more weight or more emphasis on that one single trait, you could. The question is, why would you? Okay. Um, when we look at production, if you are looking at what makes a profitable operation, it's not just one single trait. Okay. We've got a combination of traits. And we also have to keep in mind that we've got genetic correlations going on. You affect one trait if you put selection and move one trait forward, you might have some other effects on other traits. So I like to pick on the dairy industry as an example. They're a prime example of single trait selection. They selected for years on milk. Great example of how EPDs and genetic selection can work because look at our, you know, our modern day Holstein. She produces a lot of milk, especially if we look back to the 1950s and that comparison, she's producing a lot of milk. The downside to that is when they they put so much pressure on milk, on increasing milk production, they started having problems in reproduction. So now they're, you know, the dairy industries had to take a step back and look at you know, we can't just single trait select because we're having antagonistic effects on other traits. And, you know, those dairy cows need to get pregnant. 
Otherwise, they're not going to be producing milk. So, you know, so that's that's the, uh, you know, my cautionary tale when it comes to single trait selection. Didn't work out. One hand, you're going to make improvement really fast on that one trait. The downside is if you're not keeping track of those other traits that could also that are going to contribute to profitability, you can end up in a hole pretty quick. And so, you know, a lot of research goes into if we're pushing really hard in this one area, what are the antagonistic effects on other things? Um, You know, mature size, I know some, um, some groups are looking at mature cow size. Could that have some, could that, be problematic, especially out west when resources are a little bit limited. Other things to look at are milk, you know, um, and it really comes down to looking at your operation. So you want to keep that balanced. And that's where indexes really step in because indexes are looking at the profitability aspect of it. If you select on increasing weaning weight, well, your birth weight's going to go up. What's that going to do to your calving ease? So if you've pushed and you've really increased weaning weight, you know, you might get into trouble because all of a sudden you start having a bunch of dystocia. Maybe you're losing some calves during the calving season just because those calves have gotten bigger and, you know, calving ease slipped a little bit. So that's where you want to balance that out. Yes, you increased your weaning weight, but you might be losing calves and a dead calf is really not not what we want. Yeah. Doesn't help the overall herd. And, and as you said, we don't want a single trait select on those, but the indexes incorporate some of those together. And, the, and there are indexes that are set up for if I sell at weaning, if I sell at yearling, or if I sell at harvest, and if I sell on a grid or live. So figuring out, right. it, it goes back to your very first point, which was excellent. Uh, have a breeding objective, right? Have a have a goal right. moving forward. You know, yeah, and you want to pay attention to the indexes. Are you keeping replacements as well? Because that does change that index quite a right. bit. If you are only, if it's a terminal index, that's a bull that's, you know, that's a different bull than something that if you're re- keeping replacements out of, you know, there's some different traits that you want to focus on with that. So, you know, terminal, you're probably not so concerned about heifer pregnancy because those calves are all going to go into the feedlot. But if you're keeping replacement heifers, suddenly heifer pregnancy plays a different role in that objective overall. So really, you know, having that plan, having that roadmap of where you want your herd to go and then finding an index that can help you um, achieve that is really, really crucial. Absolutely. And and I think as you brought up terminal versus trying to raise both heifers and steers on my operation, I'm going to have different selection criteria. The other thing that you brought up earlier as you were discussing through was heterosis. So many operations, we have purebred operations and we have commercial operations, or at least all divide them that way. And some of our commercial operations are not necessarily purebred, but they're working with only one breed predominantly. And tell me some, if I'm that operation, is there enough benefit for heterosis for me to consider it? And what do you see as some of the main benefits? Yeah, well, it comes down to how you're marketing your calves. 
Um, you know, that's really the, how you're marketing them is going to dictate, uh, you know, you might have a market for that straight bread or that purebred animal. So obviously you want to keep going down that road. Um, but, you know, the advantages of heterosis is that, you know, research has shown over and over again can really be beneficial, especially on um, our, what we call fitness traits. So like cow longevity, cow fertility, you know, nothing's going to beat that F1 cross as far as a female staying in the herd. You know, we've seen that over and over again. You can get some bump in performance, calf performance for weaning weight, you know, some advantages of heterosis for growth as well. Um, so, you know, making those crosses, you can really see some benefits from that. Um and, you know, we see that, too, in the market, especially for bulls. We see a lot more composite bulls out there where people have made some really conscientious decisions of what breeds to combine for these co composite bulls. So we're seeing that as well. And, you know, just coming from the Simmental Association, we've got Simangus has, you know, really become a pretty popular cross in the beef industry. Um, the one downside to heterosis or having a crossbreeding program is it can, you know, it's a little bit hard to maintain that F1 in a herd and it takes some organization and um, try, you know, it's just not as simple as having a purebred. You know, it's easy if you're working with one breed, you don't really have to think about that, you know, it's just, it's one breed. There you go. Crossbreeding, there is a complexity of choosing which breed to work, you know, looking at those breeds and doing your homework. Because when you go out to buy those bulls, you have to really think about how do you compare a Hereford to a Charlet to an Angus. And, you know, those EPDs are not directly comparable. Um, there are some, you know, the breeds that are coming out of IGS that are incorporated in that genetic evaluation, those EPDs are directly comparable. But, you know, if you're looking at a Simmental comparing it to an Angus, again, those EPDs, you got to put some thought into it that they're not directly comparable. Um, so that adds to complexity to your breeding program. So it's the downside of crossbreeding, but, um, you know, I'm a proponent of crossbreeding. I'd like to see, like to see more of it out there, if possible. Yeah, but I, I think that's a it, it's a big opportunity, as you described. Some of the some of the advantages are in, as you listed off, some of those traits are in what I would think of as lowly heritable traits. I mean, there are some highly heritable traits that we can get that in, but some of the cow longevity, the ability for her to stay in the herd and get bred back. I mean, which those two things are related, but they're influenced right. by a lot of factors. Ha having some heterosis on our side is good, but takes a little planning to, to manage that out, which leads me into at the start. We, we talked about, uh, you, you mentioned two things, right? H how can we pick the right bull? And then how do I keep this long-term plan for genetics? Do you, do you have tips or tricks? Because you're right. If I make genetic selections and this heterosis is a great example, I start out with a plan, but I don't see the fruits of that plan for maybe three to five years, depending on if I'm saving heifers and then getting calves out of them. Uh, what are your tips and tricks to get people to 
And I'd like to know for myself, <laughs> I, I can have a three to five year plan, but how do I stay on it? Right. Well, gee, how do you stay on it? Uh, that's a great question. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, you know, when it when we think about that cow herd, especially especially in cattle, right? When we think about other species like um, hogs and poultry, they have a really quick turnaround, right? So, you know, you can make genetic change pretty, you know, relatively quick in those species because that generation interval is pretty quick. By the time they have a replacement, they can actually, you know, they can make a change and see that genetic improvement. In cattle, this is much more long-term. And when we talk about cow longevity, you know, it's a tough, that's a very tough trait to model and to get genetic prediction on because it's measured so late in life. By the time we actually see that phenotype of those cows that have stayed in the herd till they are six or seven years old, that bull, their sire is already long gone. So, yeah, trying to track that. So that's where it's really it's even more important to take that time out to start to record and measure your performance of your herd. And especially when we talk about cow longevity, you know, record why the cow left the herd. Did you call her because she was crazy? Did you call her because she was open? Did you call her because she was born? You know, she threw a calf that was a wrong color, like, you know, she had a red calf and you wanted something black. Recording all that information is crucial because then you can understand, well, did she call because she f- failed reproductively or did she, call, you know, did she fail because of another reason? Keeping that information long term, you know, it's hard. It's not easy. Um, but if you want to really track and see what's happening with your herd that needs to happen. The other thing too is if you are reporting this information, because a lot of information, we lose a lot of that information, especially coming from commercial herds. So if we think about this from a genetic evaluation standpoint, we lose a lot of information long-term. So if those bulls are sold, say you're a seed stock producer, you sold a bull, he went into a commercial herd, a lot of times we lose that information back from that bull because it's in that commercial herd. So there's been a lot of work in the breed associations where they're trying to collect more of that commercial information. So recording that information and maybe working with somebody you're buying your bull from, or if you are curious as a producer what your genetic profile is of your herd, you can get involved in these operate in these um, programs by the breed associations to start to report that information. So you can get an idea of what your herd looks like. And that also, it just helps the whole system, helps the seed stock producers to produce better bulls that are going to fit into that commercial herd. Um, But it's not easy. The downside is it takes time to record that information. And that's, you know, I, I totally understand that and I empathize with producers because it takes a lot of work to take the time to sit down and put it together. So, um, you know, but really, if that's where you really want to make those improvements, that's really what it comes down to is just recording that information. But th- but that's what keeps me in on the long term, right? That gives me my mm-hmm. feedback because all of us are geared toward 
having some type of short-term feedback, I think. And, and we may be working toward a long-term reward, but I need to know what was it like this year? What was it like this year? And as we progress, and, and I like your idea is basically what I heard you say was that could be at different levels, different depth. So I could do it by recording weaning weights this year, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. I could get engaged by recording more information on my herd, or I could go all the way to the end and say, I'm going to actually record data and report it to a breed association so that I get some more feedback. And, and that you can kind of match up to w what the producer wants to do. But I like your perspective that that heterosis and breeding decisions, I need to have some way to evaluate them. We've talked to all bulls. I know you're doing some work on heifers and heifer development. Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about heifer development and some of the stuff that you, I know you've embarked on some research projects in this area, may not have complete results yet, but tell me some of the things you're looking at. Yeah. So we've got a project that uh, we just just started last month, actually, um, started at weaning. So, um, you know, Iowa State, we have a... Uh, Angus herd, um, research herd, the McNay research herd, and they've been selected. They were part of a breeding project where they selected a marbling and used ultrasound carcass measurements and used that to select, you know, to select a marbling. And it's a huge success. These these animals marble like you would not believe. Uh, I think it's the first time I've seen a kill sheet where there were prime plus and multiple prime plus on these animals. So they just marble like crazy. So, you know, I just had the idea of like, well, what if we start to look at, we use carcass ultrasound with the, that concept of these animals going into the feedlot and basically you know, what's their carcass going to look like? Could we maybe use some of that technology to look at heifers as they develop and where are they allocating, you know, fat to muscle and how they're growing and developing? And could that be an indication of the heifers that are going to get, that are going to breed versus the ones that don't? So, um, you know, it's expensive to develop a heifer. It's long term. It's they're two years old before you get any benefit from that. You know, it's a kind of a loss of efficiency for these heifers that you develop that just don't breed or breed late in the season. So, you know, could we find something, you know, as an indicator earlier on, you know, and uh, some of it, too, is just a better understanding of how these heifers are, you know, depositing or, or developing as they as they mature. So uh, we've got one group that we are on a slightly restricted diet. We're not going crazy, but we're developing them at a slower uh, slower growth curve than the other ones. So we've got one that we're targeting. One group we're targeting to about a sixty five percent mature body weight. When we go to breed, the other one we're looking to mature to about, you know, 55%. So looking to have maybe an on average, maybe a one body condition score difference between the two groups and just see we're going to do serial ultrasound measures as they develop. So we've already taken one at waning. We're getting ready here at the beginning of December to take another measurement. And we just want to see how on these two different planes of nutrition, how are they, you know, what's the difference between the two? 
And then we'll see how they breed in come, you know, this next summer. And so I have, we'll, we'll see what comes out. This is the joy of research. Sometimes you have this brilliant idea and you really keep your fingers crossed that something comes out of it. But we've already, our first weaning, when we scanned them at weaning, we already saw quite a few of these heifers have quite a bit of marbling, which we didn't really anticipate. We thought they'd have, you know, a little less marbling, a little more you know, because they'll be allocating it to growth and muscle development. But we saw quite a bit of marbling. So it'll be interesting to see how this project progresses. And it's something that I really hope that we can um, provide information to producers and just add to that body of information for heifer development going forward. So, um, yeah, we'll see how this pans out. Well, it's interesting because I, I think adding the component of looking at the scans and looking at the muscle slash marbling development, uh, we a lot of times talk about heifers, just as you described, we're feeding them to X percent of mature body weight, right? And we think that's there, which may be, and, and we're hoping that approximates physiologic maturity as they go through that process, but you're actually kind of measuring some of those things on on that level. So that'll be interesting to see what what turns out through that project. And then that would tie back into genetic selection is what you're thinking? Yeah, I'm hoping long-term that this could be a project that we look at selection. So, you know, like I said, I grew up in the West, especially in New Mexico. I'm used to seeing cows in some pretty extreme environments with very limited forage resources. And so, you know, what makes that cow that comes back every year that she breeds back every year, even though, you know, there may have been a drought, she may have been a little skinny that year, but somehow she gets bred back. So it's that resiliency that I'm a little bit fascinated with. And so, you know, some of that ties into, you know, are how are we developing our heifers? Are they, you know, ready to go out and breed back year after year. So hopefully this project will look at these heifers on these two different selection, you know, two different nutritional planes. How do they, how long do they stay in the herd? Do they breed back every year and things like that? So that's what I'm kind of hoping that we can long-term apply that into a re- into a long-term selection project and just kind of dive into that female resiliency and um, longevity and see if we can't maybe find a few more pieces to that puzzle that we can add to the whole picture. And I, I think, and this is, I guess, my opinion, but that resiliency, longevity, so much more important on the female side because we're producing so many females. And probably back to what you you described it earlier as breeding objectives, but in this case, uh, regions of the country is going to vary greatly with what type of cow that we need. And inherently, you're you're saying, well, you kind of need to match them up, right? Make sure your cows fit your environment and don't take those cows you described from New Mexico and put them in Iowa or the Midwest and say, hey, go girl, <laughs> or vice versa, well, yeah. right? Because it's exactly. not going to work. Well, right. And your breeding objective, it you know, you hit it right nail on the head there, like, you know, they have to fit their environment. They have to fit your production system and your management system. And so that's where it's important to design your breeding objective around what your operation needs. And, you know, that ties into your environment. The cow that is, you know, that we have here in Iowa, 
It's going to be a different cow than what we're going to see out in New Mexico. But, you know, especially with the use of AI these days, you know, we've got bulls that are siring calves across the country. And so how does that that genetic and environment interaction really play in? And there's a lot of work being done on that as well. And so, you know, does a cow that stays in the herd a long time here in Iowa, does she also, do those same genetics still apply in different environments? You know, these are questions. We know environment's got a huge impact on cow longevity. And so, you know, but it's just, you know, it's peeling back the layers. There's always tons of questions. And this is, you know, there's a lot of questions of like, what, what makes that cow stay in the herd long term? It's time for our famous three. Data shows most cattle don't get the vitamin D they need, especially in winter months. High D from DSM Firmanish can ensure your cattle get the recommended vitamin D level to support bone strength, help immunity, and improve performance. Visit dsm.com forward slash hy d to learn more. That's the fun part of your job. And that's why it's good to have somebody like you in this position, because you can, you've got that curiosity, right? How do we figure out this, this, and this, which leads me to my kind of my wrap up questions here. And I've got three for you that I'm going to ask you, because I think other people want to know as, as after listening to you, what, what kind of fuels you as you go forward. So what is your, what is your favorite beef related either book or resource or website, where do you go? Where does Randy go when she wants to get more information? Uh, oh, great question. Uh, you know, the I would say extension resources. I mean, granted, it's a little self-promoting plug, you sure. know, since I work in extension, but, you know, extension's there for a reason. And I get a lot of information from not just, you know, extension bulletins and resources here at Iowa, but from all institutions across the country. Um, you know, we've got ebeef.com. That's a great, um, I hope it's .com. Um, you know, it's a great resource, especially if you want to dial into um, genetic specific. If you have a genetic specific question, they're great resources for that. But beyond that, like if I've got a question on reproduction or nutrition or anything along those lines, you know, I, I, I look up a lot of extension bulletins from other universities and institutions, and I really think it's there for producers, but I find it just as beneficial. Absolutely. And so easy to access. I mean, most of those we can find pretty readily as we look, on, look online. What about in the non-beef, non-ag field? Do you have a favorite book or resource or something that you look at there? Uh, uh, well, good question. Um, you know, I am a podcast junkie, and um, but I, I love listening to economic podcasts. Which, oh, what's, you your, know, what's your favorite one? You know, right now, lately, I've been listening to one called The Economics of Everyday Things, yeah. And it, they're, it's a short podcast. I think it's about 30 minutes. And they just talk about everyday things. Like, I think one of the first ones was about gas stations. And I never thought to stop to think about where they make, where their profit comes from and that whole business model. And you would think it's from gas, but it's actually not. Yeah. And so they talk about that. And I just, I find it fascinating. And, um, 
you know, it's it's not beef related, but it really makes me take a step back and, and question things and think, wow, I never thought of that. And that's something I actually bring to work with me every day is like, you know, I heard this on a podcast. I wonder if I can apply it to a research project. So, Well, and it's a great tool for as you're traveling about, you're going back and forth, you can digest it, have some time to think about it as you're, as you're driving in the truck or the tractor, wherever you're driving. Hopefully people are doing this, that with this podcast right now. So exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, last question. When you see somebody and, and we want people to be able to be in the top of the industry, when you see somebody and you say that is a successful beef professional, give me some of the attributes that you're seeing in that person. That's a good question. Uh, trying to think. It's like on the spot where you suddenly, and you know, as soon as we log off, I'll think of like 20 things that will yeah. come rushing in. That's all right. You know, I, a couple of things come to mind. I think one is, and it ties back to a lot of what we discussed earlier, is they have a good, they've got a good read on what their operation is doing. They're keeping track of things. They record information. You know, they know where they're at. Um, it's, it's not a question of like, well, maybe my weaning weight's here, or maybe I had, you know, my, uh, preg rates were here. They know they're keeping track of it and they're, they're spending the time to do the homework that they need to do to keep moving the needle forward. You know, you can't fix it if you don't know it's broke. So they've got a pretty good, um, they're dialed in with that. Continuous improvement, right? And you can't exactly. have continuous improvement without records. So I, I exactly. think that's absolutely right. And we, you, you've given us lots of good methods to actually do that. And I said at the start, you, you do a lot of applied stuff, as was your talk today, right? You, you gave us some specific goals as we're planning out picking bulls. We talked about some of the research that you're doing on heifers, and then you gave us some, some good tips here at the end too. So. Randy, I've really enjoyed visiting with you today. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time-consuming and requires technical know-how. But don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.